Hello, everyone, and welcome to the February 8th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. More than a dozen major healthcare organizations and associations have jumped into a U.S. Supreme Court case over the validity of a legal theory now used to bring many fraud lawsuits against them. The case has the potential to reduce or increase the number of False Claims Act suits brought against health care providers depending upon which way the high court rules. The U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to hear the appeal of Universal Health Services versus the United States and the whistleblower Julio Escobar. The case focuses on situations in which whistleblowers allege providers have submitted false claims to government programs by failing to follow regulations. This legal theory is known as implied certification, and this theory has been accepted by some federal courts and rejected by others. Organizations found liable under the False Claims Act also called key Tom litigation, face penalties, and triple damages. In 2015, two-thirds of federal whistleblower lawsuits targeted healthcare entities. That's what prompted a number of healthcare organizations to file and side with Universal Health Services, which argues against the theory. Organizations such as the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, also known as Pharma, the Generic Pharmaceutical Association, the American Hospital Association, and the Chamber of Commerce of the United States have all filed amicus briefs supporting universal health services. The American Medical Association argues that imperfect compliance with regulations is not the same as fraud and urges that the law be changed. The association goes on to say that in its amicus brief that the healthcare regulatory environment is especially complex, making it particularly inappropriate to use the hammer of liability to punish noncompliance. The American Hospital Association, the Federation of American Hospitals, and the Association of American Medical Colleges say the healthcare field is already targeted by whistleblowers seeking massive payouts. They argue in their briefs that the implied certification theory has exacerbated the filing of meritless suits against healthcare organizations. They also say the suits try to tap into the extreme complexity of Medicare and Medicaid and use that as a basis for asserting that hospitals Healthcare providers and others have committed fraud for what might be fairly considered a minor regulatory misstep. The United States Chamber of Commerce claims that the theory profoundly increases risk and uncertainty for government contractors, grantees, and program participants, and thus the law should be rejected. But the Taxpayers Against Fraud Education Fund a not-for-profit group that supports whistleblower incentive programs said 
Implied certification is important for holding healthcare and other organizations accountable for doing the right thing. Even if that right thing isn't explicitly stated in a contract with the government, it claims the facts of this case before the Supreme Court are a prime illustration. The Universal Health Services case was brought by the parents of a patient who died at a Massachusetts mental health clinic. Her parents alleged that the clinic's caregivers were not properly supervised and that the clinic did not employ a board-certified or board-eligible psychiatrist and a licensed psychologist in violation of state Medicaid program regulations. The first U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals sided with the parents in that case. The teen who died, Yarshuka Rivera, began seeing Universal Health Services counselors Maria Pereira in 2007 after experiencing behavioral problems at school. Therapist Pereira, though on staff at its satellite clinic, had no professional license to provide mental health therapy. After hearing parent complaints about the quality of their child's care, the teen was transferred to another staff member, Diana Casado. Like Pereira, Casado was unlicensed. Then in February 2009, Yarshuka was once again assigned to a new therapist, Anna Fuchu. Fuchu held herself out as a psychologist with a PhD, but... The parents later learned that she had trained at an unaccredited online school and that her application for a professional license had been rejected. Several months later, after the teen's behavioral problems had not abated, officials at her school would not permit her to attend classes unless she saw a psychiatrist. Her therapist then referred the teen to Maribel Ortiz, another staff member for this purpose. Believing Ortiz to be a psychiatrist, the parents referred to her as Dr. Ortiz. However, she was not a psychiatrist, but rather only a nurse. This teen died after having a second seizure while under this care. The case before the Supreme Court is based upon the parents' suit that the clinic violated federal regulations that required proper licensing and supervision. It is hard to accept the healthcare industry argument that the clinic in this case could not understand and comply with what they deem complex regulations on proper licensure before they bill the government for services. A federal appeals court ruled that four patents related to Purdue Pharma's painkiller, OxyContin, are invalid, potentially bringing competitors a step closer to introducing generic versions of the drug. Privately owned, Purdue Pharmaceuticals sued a number of competing drug makers after they sought approval from the U.S. FDA to make generic OxyContin. But the Federal U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals upheld earlier orders from a lower court judge in favor of the generic drug makers. Purdue said it was reviewing the decision and considering what to do next. It claims that despite the court's ruling, 
Purdue has several other patents protecting OxyContin and does not anticipate generic manufacturers selling the product in the near future. Currently, the only generic versions of OxyContin on the market are so-called authorized generics, which are exact copies of the brand name Purdue version. Purdue's lawsuit went to a non-jury trial before U.S. District Judge Sidney Stein in Manhattan back in 2013. In January 2014, Judge Stein said that the patents were invalid because they did not add enough to what was already known. A new WCAB panel decision continues the erosion of the UR-IMR jurisdiction, which was adopted by SB 863. Here's what happened in the case of Arroyo versus Inland Concrete Enterprises. Back in 2000, Rodolfo Arroyo injured his back, knees, and right big toe while working for Inland Concrete Enterprises as a concrete worker. The party's AME, Stuart Green, MD, testified in 2008 that it was medically reasonable for him to use a motorized scooter to relieve the effects of his injury. Dr. Green reiterated that opinion in his comprehensive 2009 report of examination. And the defendants accepted the opinion of the AME and provided Mr. Arroyo with a motorized scooter. But after five years, the scooter began to break down. So the PTP reported that the scooter was broken and requested authorization to replace it with a new scooter. However, the UR reviewer did not evaluate whether the scooter should be replaced or repaired. Instead, the timely UR decision addressed whether Arroyo should use a motorized scooter as a matter of medical necessity and denied authorization to purchase one on the grounds that it was not essential to care. After a hearing, the work comp judge who found that the WCAB lacked jurisdiction subject matter over the treatment dispute because the defendant issued a timely UR decision. But the WCAB granted reconsideration and reversed this finding in the panel decision. The panel concluded that the work comp judge correctly noted that the UR decision was timely, but the judge incorrectly concluded that the WCAB had no jurisdiction over the treatment dispute. The PTP requested authorization to replace the broken scooter, but the UR did not address whether the broken scooter should be repaired or replaced. Instead, the UR considered whether provision of a scooter was medically necessary or supported. But that was not the issue raised by the request for authorization. The panel agreed that when a defendant authorizes a particular kind of medical treatment, it does not become obligated to provide that treatment forever. For example, URs at reasonable interviews Intervals can address the ongoing use of a medication, and that may be appropriate. Similarly, the ongoing provision of physical therapy and chiropractic treatment may properly be evaluated through UR from time to time to determine if it is reasonable to continue those treatments. But in all of these situations, the UR that is conducted must address the treatment for which authorization is requested. That did not occur in this case. 
The defendant did not conduct a timely UR of the treating physician's request for an authorization to replace or repair the broken motor scooter. <clears throat> Thus, there was no valid UR concerning the request for authorization submitted by the PTP and the determination may be made by the WCAB based on substantial medical evidence. And now our crime report. The former owner and operator of a DME company based in Long Beach were sentenced for their roles in a $1.5 million Medicare fraud scheme. 41-year-old Amalia Cherniovsky and her 46-year-old husband, Vladislav Terchernyevsky, were ordered to pay nearly $650,000 in restitution and ordered the husband to serve 51 months in prison. Last October, a federal jury convicted both of these defendants of one count of conspiracy to commit health care fraud and five counts of health care fraud. These defendants were the owners and operators of J.C. Medical Supply in Long Beach. The defendants paid illegal kickbacks to patient recruiters in exchange for patient referrals, and they paid kickbacks to physicians for fraudulent prescriptions, primarily for expensive, medically unnecessary power wheelchairs. This case was brought as part of the Medicare fraud strike force. And in regulatory news, the average amount paid for an individual medical legal service in the California workers' compensation system rose 66% in the eight years that followed the 2006 revisions to the medical legal fee schedule. And the mix of medical legal services shifted away from those reimbursed at a flat fee toward time-based services such as comprehensive evaluations involving a claim of extraordinary circumstances and supplemental reports. The findings are part of a new CWCI study that reviews the legislative reforms, regulatory changes, and judicial decisions that have reshaped the medical legal process. Among the key findings, the study said that the percent of indemnity claims with medical legal services dropped from 24% in 2004 to 17% in 2005 after implementation of reforms, and this number has remained nearly at that level. In 2007, the first full year under the revised fee schedule that introduced new time-based billing codes, the average payment for an individual medical legal service was $979, but by 2014, the average had increased 66% to over $1,600. The increase reflects a continuing shift from services with flat fees to time-based services that are billed in 15-minute increments. The CWCI has published its study, including additional details, tables, and analyses in a research note and research subscribers can access the full 20-page report by logging into the Institute's website. According to excerpts of documents that Congressional Committee members just made public, a decision by Turing Pharmaceuticals to increase profits by raising the price of a life-saving drug by 5,000% 
drove some patient copays up as much as $16,000. The price increases sparked a major public outcry, and companies now face federal investigations over the drug pricing. The memos released by members of the powerful U.S. House of Representatives Committee in Oversight and Government Reform give a rare behind-the-scenes glimpse into the business decisions behind the drastic price increases. The document excerpts show how drug maker Valiant brought two heart medicines for their material pricing potential and Valiant increased the price of the drug isoprenol by 525% and nitropress by 212%. The document also suggested that Valiant hiked the prices of another 20 drugs by more than 200%. In a statement, Valiant said it had responded to complaints about pricing by offering volume-based discounts of up to 30%. The other pharmaceutical company, Turing, said in a statement that it cut the price of its drug, Daraprim, by up to 50% for hospitals. These transcripts show Turing tried to maximize profits from Daraprim while warding off potential public relations backlash from HIV patients who rely on the drug. Not long after Turing acquired the drug, Reports began to pour in about patients with skyrocketing copays. The DWC Administrative Director, Dusty Overpeck, is leaving the Department of Industrial Relations to join the State Bar at its Office of the General Counsel. Her last day with the DWC was February 12. DWC Chief Counsel George Parasato will assume the active administrative director responsibilities. Ms. Overpeck managed the DWC and oversaw the implementation of several reforms to the workers' comp system, including SB 863. The DIR director, Christine Baker, said that as a valued member of her team, Dusty Overpeck leaves behind a strong organizational structure and dedicated team at the division. Overpeck has been with the DWC for a total of 16 years. After five years as an attorney with the legal unit, she was appointed chief counsel in 2005. She became acting administrative director in 2009 and was appointed administrative director by Governor Brown in 2015. The CCWC legislative advocate has prepared an excellent forecast of the workers' compensation issues likely to be raised this year by the California legislature. The state legislature returned to Sacramento on January 4 to complete the remainder of the 2015-2016 legislative session. The workers' compensation system has not been a major focus for the legislature for the last few years. The DWC, however, has been busy promulgating regulations to implement SB 863, and the legislature has stayed focused on other issues like climate change, transportation, infrastructure, the drought, and affordable housing. But the bills remaining from 2015 are still eligible for consideration in the early weeks of 2016, 
One bill from 2015 was SB 563 by Senator Richard Pan. Previous versions of the bill sought to place significant roadblocks in front of employers seeking to perform legitimate utilization review. However, recent amendments narrowed the scope of the bill to simply prohibit UR contracts with a payment structure that specifically incentivizes delays, denials, or modifications of treatment requests. While there are some small details to be worked out, it appears that most of the concerns with this bill have now been resolved. But SB 863 is over three years old, and stakeholders are realizing that maintenance needs to be occur if the system is to stand balance. It seems likely that policymakers will attempt to smooth out whatever rough edges remain with recent reforms and maybe even tackle some of the big issues that still remain. It is unclear whether the conditions exist to tackle the big issues in 2016, which would be cumulative trauma reform, utilization review frequency, and a myriad of other issues from every corner of the stakeholder world. The first new workers' compensation bill of the year, SB 897, provides an additional year of full salary replacement in lieu of temporary disability for certain law enforcement personnel and firefighters. This provision is a source of great expense for local governments and the state. The DWC is again holding public hearings to discuss the adoption and implementation of a drug formulary. At its most basic level, a formulary is a list of medicines. Traditionally, a formulary contained a collection of formulas for the compounding and testing of medication, a resource closer to what would be referred to as a pharmacopoeia today. Today, the main function of a prescription formulary is to specify particular medications that are approved to be prescribed at a particular hospital, in a particular health system, or under a particular health insurance policy. The development of a prescription formulary is based on evaluations of efficacy, safety, and cost-effectiveness of the drugs. Depending upon the individual formulary, it may also contain additional clinical information, such as side effects, contraindications, and doses. Assembly Bill 1124, which became effective this January, requires the adoption of a workers' compensation formulary by July 1, 2017. The overarching goal of the formulary and related rules is to expeditiously provide high-quality evidence-based care to injured workers while minimizing administrative burden and costs. The DWC will facilitate public discussion on how best to achieve this goal, including the design of the formulary, how to maximize evidence-based drug selection, and transparency. A newsline will be issued in the near future to announce the posting of an agenda and background material on the DWC forum. And in financial news, Maximus, the private company that provides the IMR and IBR services for the workers' comp system, reports a 19% revenue growth and expects more revenue increases in the future from government programs. 
The company provides business processes services to government, health, and human services agencies in the United States, Australia, Canada, Saudi Arabia, and the United Kingdom. It focuses on administering government-sponsored programs such as Medicaid, the Children's Health Insurance Program, health care reform, welfare to work, Medicare, child support enforcement, and other government programs. It was selected by the DWC to provide IMR services for the California work comp community. The company is based in Reston, Virginia, and has more than 13,000 employees, and Maximus is financially prospering. This week, it reported a revenue growth of 19% to $556.7 million compared to the same period last year. It had new contracts pending as of the end of the year in the amount of $285 million. However, some claim the outsourcing of health and human services functions to private for-profit firms raises significant concerns. In 2014, the Maximus CEO told Investors Business Daily that Maximus had booked $347 million in contracts related to Obamacare in 2013. In its 2013 annual statement, Maximus reported that 65% of its total revenue for that year came from its health services segment and that it expects health sector-related revenue to continue to increase. That is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Fols, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.